If you're gay, then you're gay. You don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. Tonight, we'll talk live with Miss Barbecue, who's on the scene at the West Hollywood Halloween Carnival. Yay! And we'll talk to a real-life gay crib keeper, Tyler Cassidy, owner of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And get the scoop on a surprisingly homoerotic 1985 horror film that was a nightmare for its young gay star. And get a dose of reality from the world's best-known skeptic, the amazing Randy. He is amazing. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Frances O'Brien. And I'm Wenzel Jones. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending October 29, 2016. The U.S. Supreme Court announced on October 28th that it would hear a case involving which public school campus bathroom a female-to-male transgender student can use. A fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling ordered the Gloucester County, Virginia School District to let Gavin Grimm use the boys' bathroom. The school board, which is appealing that decision, had instituted a policy requiring students to use bathrooms and locker rooms consistent with their biological genders, and ordered students with gender identity issues to use separate private facilities. Because of the school board's appeal, Gavin is still forced to use separate bathrooms and locker rooms on his high school campus and to endure the corresponding humiliation. Through his ACLU lawyers, Grimm said that, While I'm disappointed that I will have to spend my final school year being singled out and treated differently from every other guy, I will do everything I can to make sure that other transgender students don't have to go through the same experience. The central issue in the case is the Obama administration's assertion that a 1972 civil rights law that includes banning discrimination on the basis of sex includes gender identity. The Department of Education issued a directive in May specifically warning schools that discriminating against transgender students could cost them federal funds. With the Supreme Court short one justice because of the refusal by the Republican leadership in the U.S. Senate to consider the president's nominee to replace the departed Antonin Scalia, a 4-4 tie would let the Fourth Circuit Appeals Court ruling in Grimm's favor stand, but it would not set national precedent. The case is expected to be heard early next year. 
the LGBT rights group Equality Utah has sued the state's Board of Education over the board's policy banning any discussion of sexual and gender minorities in public school classrooms. The lawsuit was filed in U.S. District Court in Salt Lake City and is the first of its kind in the country. At least seven other states, Alabama, Arizona, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Texas have similar no-promo-homo restrictions, which the Utah lawsuit says are violations of First Amendment free speech rights and equal protection rights guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. The National Center for Lesbian Rights brought the suit on behalf of Equality Utah and three public school students and their parents. It claims that enforced silence about LGBT people creates a hostile culture for sexual and gender nonconforming students, putting them at risk for isolation, harassment, and long-term negative impacts on their health and well-being. These laws prevent presentation of accurate information concerning lesbian, gay, and bisexual people in health classes and other classes, the lawsuit contends, even when such information serves important educational purposes while imposing no similar restriction on discussion of heterosexuality. The district court has yet to schedule hearings in the case. The British government has blocked a proposal in Parliament to pardon men convicted of violating laws banning private consensual adult gay sex before it was decriminalized in 1967. The bill would have posthumously pardoned thousands of men convicted of offenses under historical anti-gay laws if those acts would be legal today. Surviving men with convictions would have been automatically pardoned. The Turing Bill was named after World War II hero Alan Turing, who was convicted in 1952 of gross indecency for having sex with another man. He chose chemical castration over jail time, but committed suicide two years later. The story of Turing breaking the Nazis' Enigma Code was dramatized in the Oscar-winning movie The Imitation Game. Turing was pardoned by Queen Elizabeth in 2013. After the royal pardon, a widely supported petition asked that all other men convicted of similar crimes be pardoned as well. But Justice Minister Sam Jima filibustered the private member bill in the House of Commons this week because the government feared extending automatic blanket pardons without requiring individual applications could exonerate some people convicted of offenses that are still crimes today. Liberal Democrat Lord Sharkey is among lawmakers who've been campaigning for the pardons. He told the Australian Broadcasting Company why they're important. There are about 65,000 men convicted under these now-repealed anti-gay laws. 15,000 are still alive, the others are dead. Their families suffered. They suffered directly in employment terms. The laws were very cruel and very unjust. However, Lord Sharkey's government-backed amendment to a policing bill, which is still pending, would require men who were prosecuted for being gay to apply for a pardon. It would automatically clear the names of historic figures. Scottish National Party MP John Nicholson, whose stymied private members' bill offered the blanket pardons, warned that under Lord Sharkey's proposal, many men will not open themselves up to the shame and humiliation of applying. And finally, Tokyo's first-ever Comic-Con has gotten off to a shaky start. The organizing committee first banned what's called male crossplay, men dressing as women, considered by many to be the highlights of any Comic-Con, while not banning female crossplay. Other bans include military and police uniforms and exposure of certain body parts. But following global protest, the committee reversed the crossplay ban this week. However, perhaps the so-called bathroom debate in the U.S. has infected Japan. Tokyo Comic-Con organizers are still requiring crossplay visitors to register and get gender-specific ID cards. They'll need to show them upon request at bathrooms and changing rooms. 
The committee originally feared what one report called the visual terrorism of middle-aged men dressed in girls' school uniforms. That's News Wrap for the week ending October 29, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Frances O'Brien. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I think this is the time of year when I miss six feet under most of all. I just started rewatching that recently. Isn't it the best? It is. And it doesn't, it doesn't stale. But we've got the next best thing, the real thing. If there's one gay man in town who knows where all the bodies are buried, it's Tyler Cassidy, the owner of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Steve Pride reports. Hi, my name is Tyler Cassidy, and I am president of Hollywood Forever and Fernwood Cemeteries. So are you technically a crypt keeper? You know, I started calling myself a cemeterian, but I don't think that's a real word. So undertaker's good, cemetery owner, but then I also have a preschool just to round things out in Mill Valley. What all do you do then? At each location here and in Mill Valley, we have... Cemeteries, funeral homes, crematories, although the location in Marin County, Fernwood, is actually a natural burial. It's adjacent to Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is that gigantic reserve. And there we bury people naturally, sometimes in shrouds, no metal, no embalming, and they're buried in a natural setting. And then we use a restoration ecology to restore the grounds as part of the burial. How does a nice boy from the Midwest end up owning a cemetery in Hollywood? Well, we had sold all of our family funeral homes, and I had an idea because when I had gone back after college for what was supposed to be a visit, I ended up making uh, video photo montages of uh, the deceased and showing those at their funerals. That's what I could relate to in terms of a funeral home because it seemed like that was a good way to remember someone, and more than an embalming art, it was actually a form of memorial where people, I saw them have the most catharsis and the most emotion. And then when the computer age came, I designed some software in New York where cemeteries and funeral homes could use our software to have archival systems at their cemeteries to pull up biographical information and photos And so I was actually out here to present to the two biggest cemeteries, Forest Lawn right next door and Rose Hill. And they at the time were speaking of the dilapidated, derelict, and twice padlocked Hollywood Memorial Park. And I stopped there on my way to the airport, and it was El Nino. And the place was completely dilapidated and flooded and in great disrepair, but I found it just beautiful. It was romantic. It seemed to me the oldest place in this city that to me at the time seemed just all newness. And it was love at first sight. But still back then, no one was dying to get in there. Nobody was dying to get in. In fact, you couldn't die to get in there unless you owned property before they lost their license. But talk about it today. Today, it is more than a cemetery. 
We are a very operational functioning cemetery. We serve so many diverse aspects and so many diverse elements of our community, but in different ways. In a funeral and cemetery way, we serve uh, the Russian Jewish community of Hollywood. We serve a lot of our Latino population because that's our demographics in L.A. We serve a lot of the Armenian population of Glendale. And those are the people that still believe in burial. We also do a lot of cremation business because that's the Anglo trend in California. And then we have, I think, an exceptional program of being an intrinsic part of the cultural fabric of L.A., if I can say that. For instance, we just had our annual Dia de los Muertos. And I haven't gotten in the final count, but I think there were, over the course of a day, I'll say over 10,000 people who came yesterday, and probably much more. That started as a Mexican tradition, but now I would say it's an Angelino tradition of art and remembrance and performance. And then we also have an ongoing cultural series of plays. We have our summer Chinespia series, which celebrates the great films, both modern and classic and black and white and even silent. We also have art exhibits. So as we experimented and opened ourselves, the city kind of saw what I saw when I first walked in. Once it was given a fresh look and a fresh name that it was culture, that there was something that was intrinsically cultural about this place. Who are some of the stars residing in Hollywood forever? Tell us where the bodies are buried. Well, it depends upon your generation, I guess. I mean, it begins with Rudolph Valentino, the great film star, and we still have his annual memorial, which this year I think 300 people turned out, which is pretty incredible. Jump forward, we've got uh, Johnny Ramone, and we have such varied characters as one of the Darrens from Bewitched, as well as his boss. We have Miss Estelle Getty, Mr. Blackwell from Mr. Blackwell's List. And then we have those who are famous among their family and friends. But so much of old Hollywood is there. Marion Davies, Jane Mansfield, Cenotaph is there. Uh, the great epic filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, both Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Sr. are there in the great Fairbanks Memorial. And it's amazing how many people who were part of the business, either doing scores or behind the camera or doing costumes like Adrian. So many people are there, and yet some of your audience probably wouldn't know them as the generations pass. Do all these activities you do there get in the way of your main business, death? That's the amazing thing because, you know, traditionally a a cemetery is supposed to serve the people in a five or ten mile radius. The interesting thing is we're serving the living, unlike any other cemetery, by bringing younger people in as well as older people in who aren't there to die or to mourn, and yet they're there to have cultural experiences with the dead surrounding them. And I think that does change their behavior, and I think it does change their experience. When people come to see, like, um, Sunset Boulevard and hear Norma say, I'm ready for my close-up, Cecil B. DeMille, and you know that he's just 100 yards away, I think there's a special feeling there. And I think just that we've been so willing, because of desperation, because we, as you said, people were not dying to get in when I got there. We had to think outside of, I can't say that, we had to, we had to think outside of the cemetery industry to make this cemetery thrive. There aren't a lot of gay cemeterians out there? Or maybe there, there are, are more, are more than you would think. 
There's someone in Orange County who actually had a calendar of shirtless funeral directors and sold that for some benefit. So when I was making the funeral convention circuit back in the early part of my career, there were a number of gays, and they appreciated me being open. Hollywood forever. Forever seems like an awfully long time. Yes, it is. Yes. One last serious question. What sort of preparations are you making for the coming zombie apocalypse? Well, a lot of meditation and yoga, and that's just to keep me calm. And I felt like Day of the Dead was good. I went up in the middle, and I just had to meditate for 15 minutes because there were so many people there. But uh, we have started to build vertically, and so we just built a 5,000-crypt mausoleum, and then we have plans for another 9,000-crypt mausoleum. So the zombie accomplice, it's going to be very busy. I mean, we're going to have to bring in a lot of part-time help. It'll be like wristbands. Yeah, wristbands for in and out. And we did show um, Dawn of the Dead just kind of of a primer, you know, how to deal with a zombie. That's where they're all living in the mall with the zombies. So I think we're pretty ready. Yeah. Are you ever creeped out roaming around your cemetery at night? I um, <laughs> I've, I've never really gotten the creeps, and I, I maybe I'm just not sensitive, or I'd like to think that if there's anyone there who's working for the dead people, it's me. You know, there's people who are definitely there for the living people and the grieving people. There's specific people now for the people that are there for entertainment, for cultural affairs. But I feel like it's always going to be my job as head caretaker to speak up for the dead people and think of, well, we're not going to do that because they don't like that. Well, how do you know they don't like that? Well, I feel like they don't like that. And I like to think that they're pleased with my job so far. So maybe they're not creeping me. And we'd like to thank Steve Pride for that. And thank you for covering the zombie apocalypse question, (laughs) which people don't pay enough attention to. I love that we have an excuse to talk about cemeteries. For me, cemeteries (laughs) are not like just a Halloween thing. Like they're a year-round thing. I grew up like going to cemeteries when I would go on vacation with my family. Oh, I know. When I was a little kid and we lived in England, going to the cemetery was a big deal. And you would do rubbings of the stones. Mm-hmm. And the Victorian ones were always very sentimental. And there were lots of dead children from the plague years. And But it wasn't creepy at all. No. And actually, this Friday, I'm going to New Orleans, which is one of my favorite cities for cemeteries. Oh, because they're above the ground. Mm-hmm. And they're just like... You can kind of tell these whole mm-hmm. groupings of people who, like, died from yellow fever because yeah. they all died at the exact same time. Yeah, yeah. So it's really cool. It's like an interesting way of learning about the history of a place. And they're all in the same plot. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, this is your first uh, Halloween as a married woman. I hope you're not going to make <laughs> coming to a radio station your Halloween My tradition. tradition. Well, at least it won't fall on Monday night for several more years. So I guess it won't be my tradition. But what would you rather be doing? Not much else. I'm sort of a homebody when it comes to Halloween. Um, Watching a movie, probably. Yeah, we do the same thing. We turn off the light, lock the door, and go to the back of the house and drink heavily. Yeah. We don't have that many kids that come around, though. We live in an apartment, and they don't really come. Yeah, and we live in a neighborhood with no sidewalks and no streetlights, so people don't let their kids come to ours. So yay, Halloween. We've got it. Okay. so... So in celebration of Halloween, we have three copies of the DVD, You're Killing Me, which stars Jeffrey Self and also features Friends of IMRU, Dro Drogi, and Carolyn Hennessy. And if you will just tweet a picture of your Halloween costume to IMRU Radio... 
we will make a perfectly arbitrary decision, <laughs> but be yeah, sure and include your mailing address for the DVD. We have three of them, so please feel free to tweet us a picture of your Halloween costume that you're killing me, and the tagline is, George has a killer new boyfriend. So you can tweet us at IMRU Radio. If you don't already follow us, follow us, please. And you can also email contest at imruradio.org. We'll be checking those throughout the rest of the show. The evening is fraught with choice. And speaking of choice, the religious have Christmas, the hungry have Thanksgiving, but we queer folk, we have All Hallows' Eve. Since the first Greenwich Village Halloween parade in 1974, we have shaped October 31st into the quintessential LGBT holiday. And it only gets gayer with age. Ah, as do we all. The West Hollywood Costume Carnival, the largest Halloween street party in the world, runs from 6 to 11 p.m. tonight on Santa Monica Boulevard between Doheny Drive and La Cienega Boulevard. Over half a million revelers are expected to attend, including our own Miss Barbecue, who's joining us by phone right now. Who else? And it wouldn't be an event without Miss Barbecue there. So what do you, how are you doing, Miss Barbecue? Oh, Lord. Hello, hello. <laughs> what are you seeing? Why don't you curate the chaos oh, for us? Oh, my goodness, girl. I have seen many, many um, sexy nurse, sexy angel, sexy werewolf. And a lot of Harley Quinn outfits. Well, now, how do we distinguish between sexy and slutty? It's such a fine line. Um, I would say, ooh, ooh, signs are falling off, too. I'm, I'm over by City Hall, walking down over to La Cienega. I would say sexy is suggestive, and slutty is just Craigslist. Okay. And what are you wearing? <laughs> well, well, I want to let you guys down, but as a drag queen... I get in makeup all the time, so I am going as Trump's, um, Trump's, um, the thing he's always trying to grab. <gasps> My. <laughs> you are dressed like that right now? I'm dressed as a kitty cat. Use the other word. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> all right. So you're just a giant kitty cat. <laughs> yes, I'm Trump's, I can't say it on the air. And, and are, are there any Trump's dress. trying to grab you? No, not yet, not yet. But I have seen some uh, some redheaded gingers with their shirts open, which is cute. <laughs> nice. Have you seen any Hillarys yet? Um, have seen any what? Hillarys. Celebrities. Hillary. Hillary any Clinton. What? Hillary Clintons? No, I have not seen any Hillary Hillary Clintons yet. I'm very surprised. I'm surprised. But that. I've seen four Trumps already and counting. But really, Hillary Clinton, how many men have a pantsuit in their closet? <laughs> I mean, you don't, do you? I, do. I, I have a couple. They're, 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 they're more like jumpers. Well, you're a professional, but, but though. I, but, but I see a lot of couples, a lot of couples walking around in, like, little couple outfits. Like, like hula dancers and, and country bumpkins and, you know... That kind of thing. And I just saw a male, a male um, Ariel walking around. He has on green tights and an orange wig and a and a flounder flounder in his hand. Ooh, I like that. Wow. I saw the most wonderful Ursula earlier today. It was really fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, okay. As a queen that works with makeup all the time, if you go to do Halloween, call a queen. <laughs> call a, call, Call a queen and have them help you. Are you seeing some shoddy work out there? Oh, man. Honey, this boy looks like he just dipped his face in vanilla pudding. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think he's trying to be? Oh, honey. I think he's trying to be Joker because his hair was green, but his face was muddy. I was like, is that the Joker on crack? 
Man, now do you, have you, you seen a favorite that, yet? You know, and you know that's bad. We got Joker on crack, honey. I know. Have you seen a favorite person yet, or? <laughs> no, but I'm walking my way down to the stages. Darren Chris is the guest of um the main the main uh the main um I guess guest of honor for tonight. Oh, yeah, because he's going to be doing a headwig. At the Pantages. Yeah, he's, he's the one doing Hedwig. Yeah. So there's going to be about three stages over here, um, and they're expecting about, what, over half a million people? Wow. Half a million people here. Yeah, Mama got her tennis shoes on, hun. I guess. Is it hard to get around yet? No heels. Um, it's kind of, everybody, it's like walking in a mall. Everybody kind of moseys. God bless you for being our representative over there. <laughs> Everybody kind of Moses, and I took the bus over here. So, so as the as the bus ride got closer, more people got on with costumes, which was funny. I saw a really bad banana. She needs, she needs to go back. She needs to go back on the shelf, honey. Uh, just a banana a in banana. a bus. He had on he had on a yellow banana suit and a black beanie. Okay, really. <laughs> but but in in the in the spirit of Halloween, he made the effort. Yeah, the whole I was thing. gonna say that's the whole thing about that's about that's the whole thing about this whole thing is that people come out and they make the effort. It's funny how everybody stays up all year to get costumes when I got costumes in my closet, yeah. but they make the whole effort to really make it special, not just for themselves but for other people as well. Well, now, do you go to this every year? Does it last way late into the night? Because I've been once, and that was decades ago. The, 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 it's going to last until around 2 in the morning, and then the, but the streets are closed off until 7 a.m. So that means people are, going to be, people are going to be like, you know, all kinds of shenanigans, especially once the liquor kicks in. Well, is it like Mardi Gras where on the morning the sun comes up and they just send the street sweeper down and whatever's in the street gets taken away? That's that's when you need to get your video camera out. Come over here. <laughs> come around. Come around Halloween at four thirty in the morning, hun. So, so what is your Halloween wish for all the IMRU listeners? My Halloween wish for all the IMRU, IMRU wish listeners is to have a safe, insane Halloween. Have fun with your costumes and with music and with other people, and don't go grabbing people you ain't supposed to be grabbing. Good advice. You hear that, Trump? <laughs> and I can't believe, of all people, you're preaching sanity to the crowd. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is fun, though, being, being out, and out, out and about on the scene, though, watching all the people, though. Excellent. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see it on the news tonight and everything, too. Well, we'd like to remind everybody that if you're wearing a wonderful costume that you want to share, please tweet it to us at IMRU Radio, and we are giving away DVDs tonight of You're Killing Me, a combination of a horror movie and a gay romance. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and, and Oh, and good luck to all the future drag queens that are born tonight. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> oh, the blessing of barbecue, the golden the kiss upon you. I know, it's like having yeah. Glinda's kiss on your forehead. Well, thank you so much for checking in with us, and have fun tonight. Yeah, be safe. I yeah. love you. Don't, don't let us I'm read about you in the paper. I'm actually going to walk around here and then go into a Halloween party. So. All righty. Bye. Bye. Right. Bye, bye okay. guys.
All right. Still to come, we talk to Mark Patton, star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And professional skeptic, the amazing Randy, who is so amazing that it's part of his name. So don't go away. We will be right back. James Whale and his pictures coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. British-born theater and film director James Whale expressed an early interest in art. He learned to stage plays while a prisoner in World War I. In 1930, after having moved to the States, he met handsome assistant story editor David Lewis in Hollywood. They openly shared a home in Pacific Palisades for 20 years. Whale is known for directing horror films such as Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man, which were all blockbuster hits for Universal Pictures. Whale retired in comfort and pursued his first love, painting. A stroke left him depleted, and he committed suicide in 1957. The 1998 film Gods and Monsters depicted a fictional account of Whale's final days. The role of James Whale was played by out actor Ian McKellen. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, John Porter. I'm a little tired of the weary throwaway line that there is no such thing as the gay sensibility. Of course there is such a thing as the gay sensibility. Of course gay men and women think in some fundamental ways differently from straight. It is not just about what we do in bed. It is about the echoes in the culture of who we are or who we aren't. Hi, I'm Clive Barker. Listen to I Am, Are You every Monday at 7 p.m. on KPFK 90.7 FM. I can't believe this night is finally here. This is what I've been looking forward to since I came out. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Neil Everett. Welcome to the biggest night of the year. All Hallows' Eve. Halloween. The Gay Super Bowl. Expectations are high that this will be the biggest and best Halloween in the history of humankind. This is what it's been all about. It's a dream come true. A night where I can totally be me with no judgment. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Michelle Marie, and we've been joined in studio by somebody dressed up like Abby Dees. Maybe. It looks just like it, her. It might be me, Abby Dees. But <laughs> it might be Abby. It's very effective. And I'm Wenzel Jones. That clip coming out of break was from the ABC sitcom The Real O'Neills. And if you're not sporty enough for the Super Bowl analogy, you might call it the Gay High Holy Day, or simply refer to it as Our Night. But however you label it, Halloween is deliciously and indelibly indelibly. Did I say that? Indelibly. You did. <laughs> I want to add another uh, Deliciously. Uh, delicious. Well, it's deliciously yes. homosexual. One other thing that was unexpectedly dubbed homosexual when it was released in 1985 is the sequel to the hit horror film Nightmare on Elm Street. Steve Pride reports. Mark Patton began his career in the Broadway production of Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, directed by Robert Altman, starring Kathy Bates, Karen Black, and Cher. He then moved to Los Angeles for the film version. But it was his next big role on the big screen, playing Jesse Walsh in the surprisingly homoerotic A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, that turned his own Hollywood dream into a Hollywood nightmare. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body. I've got 
see. You think we should call the doctor? No. No, I'm fine. It's just a bad dream. Okay? Hi, I'm Mark Patton, actor, producer, political activist, actually now. I'm the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. At that particular time, 1985, 1986, it was terrifying to be a gay actor in Hollywood. I was instructed when I first moved here that I wasn't allowed to live in West Hollywood, anywhere in the 90069 zip code, that I would not ever set foot in a bar because the agencies kept people in the bars to look for other agencies, gay clients, and then sabotage them. It's very cutthroat because at the time, AIDS was everywhere. And it was something that people didn't want to talk about. But you'd see a guy, and six months later, you'd run into him on the street, and he was an old man. As an actor, it was the love that dare not speak its name. It was a completely different world. And in this closeted town, you were cast in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is notorious for its gay subtext. I'm scared, Grady. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Look, I don't care if you believe me or not. Hey, I believe you. You've had some scary dreams, okay? David Chaskin wrote it as gay, but when people asked him about it, he said, oh no, Mark was just so gay that he gayed up the whole thing and he destroyed this movie. And he did that for 30 years until I busted him in a uh, documentary called Never Sleep Again. And now I'm doing a documentary which is about why boys like me disappeared in Hollywood. Somebody would get famous, and you'd say, like, oh, my God, he's so good. Like Mitchell Anderson. He's so good. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. We hid. We had to because it wasn't safe. And it was like nobody wanted you. When you start getting fag-bashed on a national or an international level, I was a boy who ran from Kansas City to New York to be safe. I didn't come to have people throw rocks at me on television and say, oh, you know, he's such a fag, or, oh, you know, like he screams like a girl, or he ruined this movie. It was my own personal nightmare. Many, many times about the Nightmare on Elm Street thing, I would go like, God, why me? Why did I end up in this movie? They called the gayest movie of all time. Freddy only kills boys. I'm in bed with my best friend. I'm naked half the time. I have an S&M gym coach who tries to rape me and then gets killed. Why did I end up in this movie? When you cast the male lead in the victim role and then have him scream for 90 minutes, you're going to have some people going, well, that's not the manliest performance I've ever seen. It just boggles my mind, and it's straight, guys. And I say, is that what you really think of women? That the worst thing that you could call me is a woman and you're attracted to women? I screamed in Nightmare on Elm Street exactly the way a person who was going to be murdered would scream. I didn't scream like a boy. I screamed like a person who was about to be murdered. Because I was playing what was traditionally a woman's part, it terrified straight guys, and they couldn't deal with it. They couldn't deal with there was a woman hero, that a woman was going to save a boy, because Kim, my screen partner, she never abandoned me. She was the hero. And what they really couldn't get their minds wrapped around, and I got this from a Yale dissertation, is it's called Reconsidering Jesse, is... Everybody's like, oh, you know, Mark's so gay, or Jesse's so gay, and all this guy. And the professor at Yale, who teaches this in a queer theory class, said, no, the gay person in that movie is Freddie. 
Freddy's the one that's pursuing Jesse. Jesse's not pursuing Freddy. And if you notice in all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, he's vicious with girls. Like his claws come up between Heather's legs in part one. He's a maniac towards women. But in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, he's seducing me. He never hurts me. He caresses my face. He almost kisses me at one point. And any boy who's interested in me, he kills him. Hindsight is amazing, but did any of these things seem suspicious at the time? I realized in the middle of filming, and I was like, I mean, literally my hair caught on fire. I was like, oh my God, I'm in my nightmare. And this portion of my life, I always said I would entitle it Scream, comma, Queen, <laughs> My Nightmare on Elm Street, because I realized right in the middle of shooting this thing that I was in my nightmare. I mean, this was bad. What was going to happen to me? And I knew when this movie came out, the people that recognized it immediately were 14-year-old boys. And they walked into the theater and they went, he's a fag. And it started like a whisper and then it became a roar. And when they realized that they had a multi-million dollar franchise on their hand, they brought Wes Craven back in and Wes Craven cut a deal with them that they would pretend that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 never happened and just jump from one till three. It just never happened. When people talk about the movie, they're talking about me. I am Jesse. I am that boy that they're talking about. And it destroyed my self-confidence. And people had thrown rocks at me, had beat me. I had gotten to New York. I had dragged myself out of basic poverty in the Midwest to become a movie star. And I let some man who wrote a movie as a joke destroy me in a way that nobody else had ever been able to do. I don't even know him. I don't know why he did it. I mean, he sabotaged his own career. He never wrote a movie again. And I want to ask him why. I just want to ask him why face to face. And I don't care if he gets up and walks out of the room and won't answer the question. I don't care if I offend him. I don't care whose feelings I hurt. I don't care if I ever work in Hollywood. I don't care if I ever make a movie. I don't care if I'm ever at a convention again. I want to know why, in God's name, did this man do this to me? Because he was rewriting the movie the entire time. I have the original script. And he would point out points. He'd say, like, when I'm dancing in this one scene, and it's a favorite of straight guys for some reason. I don't know why they love me in this bedroom scene. But he pointed this out in the documentary. He goes, look, that was the actor's choice to be so gay in this. But when you look in the script, which I have, it says Jesse bumps his butt against the drawer two times, takes a pop gun out, pretends to be masturbating, and pops it as the girls walk into the room. And on the door, it says, no chicks allowed, right? And it's like, I didn't write that. I was just a good, faithful servant, and I was an actor in the way that I was trained to be, and I respected the writer, and I read what was on the page, and I played the part, even though I was so scared in the middle. I never stopped playing the part, and I want to know why he did it. This has been a conversation with Mark Patton. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Jesse, it's okay. It's all over. <laughs> Did you ever see heaven right in your arms, saying I love you, I do? 
Well, the dream that was walking and the dream that was talking and the heaven in my arms was you. And thank you, Steve. Now, I this is one of those movies I never, I hadn't seen till a couple of years ago because I don't do slasher films. And my boyfriend says, "Oh, you have to see this one. This is not like any slasher film you've seen." And it is. It's so gay and so eighties, so eighties gay. Well, I wonder if that sort of there's something redemptive about that. Like we know, yeah, that you were in this and we care. Yeah. And... Oh, there's nothing secret or hidden or or you know subliminal about it. It's just right out there. It's quite something. And Mark Patton also was the character in uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, who becomes Karen Black. So there you go. So we were discussing Halloween traditions earlier, but you weren't here to join in. But I... I believe you have one yourself. Well, my tradition was always to turn off the lights, and but now I'm married, and mm-hmm. that doesn't fly, and so I hide in the house while she sits on the front step with a big bowl of candy, where she is right now, probably on her third beer, with a big <laughs> bowl of candy on her lap. <laughs> and does she get dressed up for this? She does, but this year she was on a plane this morning, so no, she didn't have time. Last year, she was some strange zombie pajama creature. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. See, I love the image of Tracy sitting out there with a beer, though. It's just it's like for Nothing this. Nothing says don't go up and talk to that woman, little girl, I, I like that. For this, we moved to the big city. <laughs> <laughs> so what kinds of things scared you as children? I remember the first Nightmare on Elm Street scared me, which is why I haven't seen any of the other ones. I think we need to just, as a statement, all mm. like do some like group Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. We could do an IMRU fundraiser. Nightmare we could. on Elm Street, Street Stop Part Two, just two, and just watch it. We could just do drag impersonations of all the characters or great. something. <laughs> oh, Halloween. Well. Thinking of magic and all things spooky, somebody who really is one of the great defenders of what's what the true meaning of magic, which is you know you're being fleeced yes. a little bit, yes. is James Randi, who is an amazing guy. He's a retired stage mu- magician, had a huge career in the 50s and 60s. And now he is, and he has been for quite some time, a scientific skeptic who has challenged paranormal and pseudoscientific claims, well, for the last 50 years now. And he is amazing. Launching his career in 1945, James the Amazing Randy entertained millions of people around the world with his remarkable feats of magic, escape, and deception. But when others started to label their tricks as real magic, Randy began to challenge their claims, becoming in the process the world's best-known skeptic. James, have you always been amazing? Oh, no. I used to be astonishing, but it doesn't fit on a marquee very well. You dropped out of high school in 1945 to become a magician. Why? I was one of those child prodigies. I was able to stay out of grade school. I just had to go in to write the examinations. This is in Canada. And many, many years ago, I'm 86, figure it out. And... uh, In doing that sort of thing and not being in school and having the ability to wander about, I uh, would occasionally attend a theater, a matinee in most cases, and I got to go to the casino theater and see Harry Blackstone Sr., who was the reigning magician of the day, touring uh, the United States and Canada regularly every year. And uh, I can tell you, when he did the levitation of Princess Azra, where he made the lady float up into the air. Well, that was magical to me, and 
I began to doubt whether I would be an organic chemist or an archaeologist as I had planned at that time. I was 12 years of age, and I sort of took a turn, maybe for the worse. I guess archaeology and chemistry lost me, but uh, show business sure got me. But in the 1970s, you became more famous as a debunker of false psychic claims. I'm not a debunker. I don't accept that terminology because that would mean that I went into an investigation saying, this is not true and I'm going to prove to you it's not true. So when I go into these things, though with a certain amount of difficulty, I have to say, I just don't know. Let's find out, shall we? In most cases, I do know, but I saw the damage that it was doing. People's belief in the paranormal powers and, and psychic forces and such. And I conferred with a great number of them who would even come to me voluntarily and ask me about something I did in the program. And they'd say, well, I enjoyed what you did so-and-so and such-and-such. -and -such. But when you told the lady her telephone number, that was real ESP, right? And I'd always say, no, 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 there's a way of doing that. Well, what is it? No, I'm sorry, I can't reveal the secrets of the conjurers after all, because uh, this is a secret brotherhood, sisterhood now. We've got a lot of female magicians in the trade, I'm happy to say. But that's the way I had to, to do it. It was very awkward when they started to believe that I actually had the powers. Well, people that believe these people want to believe them. Let's change that statement, though. Instead of just want to believe them, they need to believe them. That's the important verb here, and I always differ with people who say the other one. They actually need to believe it because they want something supernatural in their lives. They want some magic in their lives. You don't need magic, folks. You need the facts. And science has the facts. That's where you'll find the facts of how the world really works. You're probably most famous for exposing New Age psychic and spoonbender Uri Geller. I have been his nemesis for years. I gave that up years ago, though, because I showed that he was a total fake that he just couldn't do what he said he was doing. And I have over 150 examples of where he has said on television, I don't know how to do tricks. I don't know any of those things that the magicians know. What I do is real. And he says it exactly that way on our film as well. And that gets a laugh from the house because they don't realize that he's a fellow who bends spoons. Now, wait a minute. What's your profession, sir? I bend spoons. Why? Because it makes me a lot of money. That's a good reason. Ben's spoons, this is an art. This is a talent that humanity needs. Any fool can bend a spoon. It's not that difficult. Well, some spoons are exceptional, but most spoons you can bend. You wouldn't want them to come to dinner, obviously. No, no. Be very careful. Don't use the best silverware. Tell me about your foundation. The James Randi Educational Foundation was set up many years ago. In order to have an actual organization that could, uh, first of all, we offer a million-dollar prize to any of the psychics who can come forth and actually prove they are psychic, you'd think there'd be a lineup outside the studio on the street right now, wouldn't you think so? I didn't notice any lineup, so we have offered that prize for all these years, and so far, no takers. Now, some people have tried, and I believe that these are the people who really believe they have psychic powers, but when we put them through the test... They fail miserably, and then they're always surprised. That is, the real truth-sayers who really believe they have the powers. The others don't come anywhere near us, of course. Someone I haven't talked to yet is Amazing Randy's amazing partner of nearly 30 years, Davy Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez. How did you two meet? We met at the Fort Lauderdale Public Library. 
I was uh, painting ceramics at that point that had space imagery. And Randy came over and he started asking me if I was interested in space imagery. And I said yes, and we ended up spending the whole afternoon together. And I had a telescope at home, a Questar telescope, and I invited him over to the house to actually see the planet Saturn. And Davey, you've stuck around for nearly 30 years. Well, Yamis is the most incredible human being i ever known. And we have a lot of things in common. And I have found through him a, an incredible sense of compassion. I have met incredible, interesting people, and he's a, a really interesting person. So um, through the years, the love has grown more and more. Randy, you came out as gay in 2010 at age 81. What prompted that? I didn't have any need to do so before that. Remember, when I was a teenager in Canada, that would never have been done. It absolutely wouldn't have happened, or you'd probably be stoned by the neighbors. But the point is, I moved to the United States and found it much more uh, acceptable of that lifestyle. And uh, I eventually got around to the point where, in my 80s, I said, it's about time. And I came out with it with no problem whatsoever. However, I remember one very pivotal moment. We were watching the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn. And after the movie, Randy was very pensive. Then the following day, he handed me out a piece of paper that he had written the night before. He said he couldn't sleep. And when I read it, it was basically his coming out letter. And I got very nervous. I said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, well, after seeing the movie, I just thought very hard about the importance of coming out and that I must. And I think that... As a person who has based his life work about telling the truth, I think it was a necessary step at that moment for him to do, and he took it, and uh, he received a great uh, appreciation from a lot of people. Well, the response was, well, not terribly surprising to me, but the result was very gratifying. By postal mail and on the Internet, letters just poured in, supporting me, saying, it's well that you did it, and that was very brave. And, oh, it wasn't all that brave. It was just time to do it. What's the best thing about being an out gay man at 86 years old? <laughs> the best thing? Well, you had the satisfaction of knowing that uh, you didn't hesitate to tell the world when it was perfectly safe to do so. There's not much danger in that, but it's the agreement that I got. The people who wrote me and... Uh, said congratulations. Now, you couldn't tell from many of them whether they themselves were gay or not. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, from the public in general, I got great approval and acceptance. Acceptance is the word here, I think. That was most pleasant to me, to know that uh, I could generally trust the public to come to their senses and look what has happened concerning the gay movement. Now, in just recent years, both Davy and I have been pretty astonished by how out this thing is now and how reasonably acceptable it is to most of the public. This has been a conversation with Davy Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez, and James, the amazing Randy. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts would tell. Just like an old-time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark or a fortress strong, the chains upon my feet, you know that ghost is me. I don't know where we are.
And Randy also told Steve that after his death, he does not want his fans to bother with a museum of magic named after him or burying him in a fancy tomb. Instead, he said, I want to be cremated and I want my ashes blown in Yuri Geller's eyes. <laughs> he means it. I know. Google The Amazing Randy mm. and documentary. There's yeah. a documentary that I don't know. It was, might have been a BBC documentary or something um, a few years ago that was so wonderful looking at his life, his work, and his lovely relationship. Well, and the Honest Liar. The You're honest good. Liar. Well uh, done. I had a little, had a little hope. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> and I and I think you can even find the clip of when he was humiliating Yuri Geller. That's I think it was on the Tonight Show. Never but it gets was, old. No, no. Schadenfreude. <laughs> oh, so what else can we talk about for this lovely Halloween? Well, what is your favorite Halloween candy? Uh, you know, I love candy corn, but I just can't allow myself to buy it anymore because I'll eat the whole bag. Really? Yeah. You like candy corn? I love it. Who likes it? Why? What it, What about I it? I don't. The... It's got that weird mouthfeel to no. it. It's that so satisfying. That would be weird. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. And, and the you mellow can't cream see, pumpkins. but we're looking and, at him. I know. With such disgust. I mean, candy it. corn is like a mistake that someone colored and sold as candy. Well, and then they make it into other shapes for other holidays. You can get, you know, red cupids. For, and it's all that same mellow cream, whatever that is. I don't know. Yeah, it's like old cake frosting that was left out on the counter for a week. Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. You say that like it's a bad thing. Yes, it is. Well, okay, on that, discuss amongst yourselves the merits of candy corn. This is the eternal question. No one will ever definitively answer it. I feel so ashamed. But, but while you're pondering that, we must say a good night tonight. So our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride. Tonight's, oh, Michelle Marie Gilkinson stepping in while we thank waited for Abby, board op Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. We'll close with Lou Reed's 1989 Ode to the NYC Halloween Parade in Greenwich Village. Good, Good night. night. There's a downtown fair singing out proud Mary as she cruises Christopher Street. And some southern queen is acting loud and mean where the docks and the badlands meet. This Halloween is something to be sure of. Especially to be here without you There's a Greta Garbo and an Alfred Hitchcock And some black Jamaican stud There's five Cinderella's and some leather drags I almost fell into my mug There's a Crawford Davis and a tacky Cary Grant And some homeboys looking for trouble down here from the Bronx but there ain't no Harry and no Virgin Mary You won't hear those voices again And Johnny Rio and Rotten Rita You never see those faces again This Halloween is something to be sure Especially to be here without you There's the born-again losers and the lavender boozers And some crack team from Washington Heights the boys from Avenue B, the girls from Avenue D, a Tinkerbell and tights. This celebration somehow gets me down. Especially when I see you're not around. There's no Peter Pedantic saying things romantic in Latin, Greek, or Spic. There's no Three Bananas or Brandon Alexander dishing all their tricks. It's a different feeling that I have today 
Especially when I know you've gone away There's a girl from Soho with a t-shirt saying I blow She's with the Jive 5, 2 plus 3 And the girl for pay dates are giving cut rates Or else doing it for free The past keeps knock, knock, knocking on my door And I don't want to hear it anymore No consolations, please, for feeling funky I gotta get my head above my knees But it makes me mad and that makes me sad And then I start to freeze In the back of my mind I was afraid it might be true In the back of my mind I was afraid that they meant you The Halloween Parade At the Halloween Parade Halloween, 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 Halloween,